We pick it up in Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1 and we're going to, we may cover as many as three chapters because we are now in the fifth of our five major sacrifices. We've had the sacrifices of the burnt or the AMPM sacrifice, that was our first. We move from that to the grain offering, the offering of fruitfulness, that was our second. We've moved to the peace offering, that's where two people who are at enmity with each other now have become friends again and the feast they enjoy together. The fourth last week was the sin offering. And then this today is the trespass offering. And then from chapters, really from the latter part of chapter 6 through 7, we will be seeing really one common theme. And it is, by the way, one of the two areas that I'm most uncomfortable sharing with you. Uh, Only because it could seem like I have a vested interest, but what's good is when you go straight through Scripture, you just make no apologies, and you you drop your head, and you keep going forward, and you let God's Word do His work. So let's open up His Word, let's pray, and let's watch God do awesome stuff. So Lord, we just lift up this time. We pray, Lord, that you would minister profoundly. Let your Word truly minister to us now. And we thank you for the blessing of this time. May your word burst open and come alive. May we have so much fun learning from it. Lord, may we personally hear you now. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of being able to praise you with Jake and with Shantae and Lauren. Thank you for the blessing of being able to pray as a family. And for all the places and the baggage we've brought in, Lord, I pray we'd check it at the door. And Lord, now you would do your perfect work. So minister to us now, we pray, in your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would commandeer every second of our attention, and it would be completely with you. And Lord, may we just be in it from beginning to end, we pray. Have your way, we pray. Redeem every second. Come upon me, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and use me now, I pray. Minister to me and through me as we commit this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. The Bible will always be the authority and anybody who tries to get you away from it should be avoided. In Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1 it says this, Now if a person sins in the hearing of an oath and, in a wit- and is a witness, whether he is seen or known of the matter, but he doesn't tell it, he bears guilt. Verse 2 says, If a person touches an unclean thing, whether the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of an unclean livestock, or the carcass of an unclean creeping thing, and he's unaware of it. Notice the word that sort of sticks out there, carcass, carcass, carcass. He shall also be unclean and guilty, or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness in which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is, that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty of any of these matters. And it shall be when he is guilty of these things, any of these matters, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing, and he'll bring his trespass offering to the Lord for the sin in which he has committed. And then God will start to develop that by animal. And our first four verses... Notice here there are three primary crimes, so to speak. Things to deal with. There are things, by the way, that God takes beyond the word sin to the word trespass. And the words are different. The biggest difference between trespassing and sinning, though the word sin in its simplest sense means to be out of position. 
is the focus with sin that you're not where you're supposed to be. But the focus with trespassing is you're where you shouldn't be. Now understand, the difference with trespassing often is there's a sign that says, do not trespass. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised by the kind of dad that that meant go explore. I don't know how that translated, but it was the case. I don't know how many of you actually watch old movies, and I'm not endorsing them. This is for reference. But my father had watched a movie once called Papillon. Steve McQueen and a couple other of those individuals. Who, by the way, for those of you who are of a younger generation, Steve McQueen, I think, was the voice. Wasn't he the voice of the old car in the movie Cars? for what's worth. Uh, just the same. And in this particular movie, was, he learned it was filmed at what was called the old Stateville prison. Now, the new Stateville prison, of course, is occupied. For those of you who are old enough to remember the Blues Brothers, they came from Stateville prison. There you go. For what it's worth, it's in the area south of Chicago, and it's where a lot of the, it's, it's a maximum security prison. Well, so my father decides he's going to go and check out this old Stateville prison because he thought it would be a cool thing to explore. So he goes over to this area, and there's this giant fence, as they have, with the big, you know, kind of chain around it with the big locks and so forth. And my father goes over to it, and he grabs it, and he shakes it. And he looks back at his wife, uh, his, you know, his new wife at the time. And as he looks back at her, he looks and says, hey, you know what? If we got some chain cutters, we could cut right through this and go right on in. And at that point, he looks up at the guard tower, and he realizes something is moving up in the guard tower. And then as something moving in the guard tower blows a whistle... And as the whistle is blown, all kinds of people come. He jumps in his car and takes off. See, the point was that he didn't realize is that the old Stateville was still occupied. My father was going to... How many people do you know want to break into a prison? My father was going to break into a prison. Could you imagine? You're a guard at the guard tower and you hear a guy down there say, if we get some chain cutters, we could go right through this. And the whole point of it was, it said do not trespass everywhere, but he didn't really seem like it had any form of effect on him other than perhaps intrigue and curiosity. In these particular things that he points out here, it goes beyond simple sin here where you've done something and you come to realize that here now you have made a conscious choice to be someplace where you're not supposed to be. And in this notice in the three of these, a couple of really beautiful points. First of all, if there were three things here to kind of point out in our first four verses, that kind of puts you in a trespass situation. The first of them is a silent witness. Did you notice that? It says in verse 1 again, that if you hear an oath, but you don't openly testify of that oath, you are responsible for that. You have made a conscious choice to put yourself in a place you're not supposed to be. Now understand the context of this is simple. Somebody makes an oath with another person. So what you have then, let's just say, is Chelsea is, is, is speaking with Heather. And Chelsea says, no, no, no. If you clean my room, I'll do your laundry for a year. Heather thinks, well, you know what? To be honest, her room can't be that bad. So, okay, I think I'll do that. So she cleans her room and then comes back. But as she seems to come back, Chelsea goes, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Which, of course, at that point, Heather feels pretty ripped off. She cleaned the room but didn't get any laundry out of it. But in the middle of all of that, lo and behold, Allie happened to be there. But because Allie's not the largest person, she could have been easily overlooked. So she thought she could have snuck out. She was actually seeking to eavesdrop, and she threw herself into the closet and then left. The problem is, she is a witness to that oath. Heather gets all bent out of shape. She takes Chelsea to court and says, she said, Chelsea says, she said, no one. And by the way, at this point, there's no substantial evidence because the substantial evidence has remained silent. 
sooner or later, God's going to nail. <laughs> God is out of love is going to nail Allie. And by the way, knowing Allie, she seems to get nailed for anything she even remotely does wrong. So you know the kind of person that never gets away with anything? That's Allie. So pray for her. <laughs> Which, by the way, pray for her that she just doesn't do wrong, not that she can get away with it. Now understand that God takes very seriously the area of being a silent witness. I'd like you to consider that. Because the whole idea here is there is a jury that needs to pass a reasonable judgment and you could be the difference or should be the difference. It's interesting when God speaks to Ezekiel and hear me now, chapter three, starting in verse 17, he says this, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give them no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he'll die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. By the way, and that, of course, will be referenced. And we see that even with Paul in Acts 20, where he kind of bounces off that idea in verse 26. Paul, the evangelist who writes a good portion of the New Testament, sits down with the Ephesian elders at a town called Miletus. And when he does, he says, gentlemen, I want you to know that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I am not hesitated but to proclaim to them, to you the whole counsel of God. See, what Paul said was simple. The responsibility of response is not my responsibility. My responsibility is obedience to what God has called me to and to do it completely. And in his case, as a teacher, he was going to teach. And when you get to places like Troas, you get the idea Paul really meant it. Paul shows up at a little island, or I'm sorry, a little coast, western coast of Turkey, called Troas. And when he shows up there, we've been there on a few of the occasions on our trips. It's a cold place. We hid in a cave to have our study, by the way, and everyone was distracted by goats. But I'm not bitter. Anyways, he's in his study, up in a second room, our third floor room, and he has his study, and it's going on until late into the night. All these candles are, these oil lamps are lit, and there's a kid who goes to the window named Eutychus, who falls out of the window because he fell into a deep sleep, falls down to the ground and dies. Now I think of all the things that could stop a pastor from teaching his message, distract him, pull him out of the way a little bit, and I guarantee you Paul would not be the kind of person that would be put off by a baby crying in the sanctuary. That's something, by the way, hey, if you have a baby, bring him. Bring him. I mean, we pray for quiet, but you get the idea. We just want you to come. Nonetheless, Paul then thinks he gets the clue. He stops his message from him, goes down, lays on top of this kid. The guy's life goes back into him. Paul goes back up there and he goes, now where was I? And he finishes. He goes on till morning. That's a guy who could say, I have not hesitated, but to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, he's like, look it, if I had it, I gave it. Now for the people that were in that room, you could have thought that guy talked forever. You think a message here could go long. That's got to be at least a 10 to 15 hour message. What a guy. Add a boy. But if that's the only time you're ever going to meet Paul, you'll remember as much of that as you possibly can. So please hear me. God calls us account for our witness. And like it or not, beloved, out these doors and in these doors, there are juries that are still not fully past their judgment on who Jesus is and how he's to be dealt with, 
and what part their life should play in it. And you may be the difference in the evidence. And if you choose to be silent, now I'm not here to, to whip on you. I'm here to say that as, instead of simply worrying about saying something, if you've given yourself to Jesus Christ, you've either surrendered yourself to a dead Savior or a living Lord. Make your decision. I've surrendered to a living Lord. And the resurrection is what I'm actually evidence of. I don't have to prove Jesus' death. I don't have to actually defend God in any manner. But I am called to be a witness of his resurrection. Because, see, understand, when God says, I am, he still is. That's the point. And if you were to call all of those religious leaders and you were going to pick a religion today to follow, and they could speak, Buddha would say, well, I was, as much as he thought, although I don't agree with everything he said by any means. But he could have thought he was. But he couldn't say he is, because he's not God. The same with Muhammad. The same with any person who's ever tried to stand up and say anything. Only Jesus is and still is because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which, by the way, is living. And the world is out there, and they're looking for a living Lord. But sad to say, many of the people have gotten great arguments, but they've gotten no evidence. And arguments will not convince people. Evidence does. Arguments, by the way, is finding out who has the better lawyer but no evidence. Think about it. So you have a guy that can wax eloquent, but he has nothing really to say. But you don't even have to be a great lawyer. If you have good evidence, the case is closed. And God is calling you to be evidence. Evidence will speak. But what if you thought about just being evidence every breath of your life? See, you don't turn off evidence because you are who you are. And if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you have a living Lord that lives inside of you who is transforming you from the inside out and taking that rotten, nasty, miserable, depressed, selfish person that I'm sure you must have been because I've been told about you. Um, No, because that's who we are. And transform us into a person who loves other people that looks objectively at things but sees optimistically because we know that all things are going to work to our good and trusts the Lord even when there's nothing to be happy about, still has joy. And even when people are completely unlovable, we love them because God is love and he lives inside of us. And even when the world tells us we have a right to actually demand something, we forgive instead. Because the one who forgave Hitler lives inside of us. And if that be the case, then God calls us to be evidence. And in this room, dare I say, every believer here still needs to see evidence. Though we've made up our mind, evidence spurs us to be evidence too, doesn't it? And God says, look it, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm not telling you to be evidence. You're good evidence already of your need. The world has no problem demonstrating their need and their great evidence of a need for a Savior and living Lord, are they not? They even wear shirts that say things like lost. I think that that's pretty simple. We would be, we'd be more nervous about wearing one that said found unless it says if found return to pub. Think about it. And he goes, look it. I want you to know this, though. There is still a sacrifice for this trespass. Aren't you thankful Jesus doesn't, doesn't just say, you know what, if that's really who you're going to be, forget it, the deal is off. But more so, he says, look it, I love you, and I'm not going to stop loving you. That's the, that's the deal. I am a living God who doesn't change. 
So look at him, the first of the three. And it's different from the other two, and we'll see why here in a moment. Whether he knows the matter or not. I'm sorry, whether he has seen or known of the matter. He's responsible to be declaring it. Here's the thing. For some of you, you would rather jump in front of a train than speak to a stranger. But I've learned this. If your eyes are on Christ, he will use you and you will find yourself being used. You never have to worry about what you said or didn't say because he's the one who's supposed to be doing the work. The question is, are you willing to, be go, to go and be sent when he sends you? I've learned this. He never sends me away from him. He sends me with him. There's a big difference. Notice the next. It says, if a person touches an unclean thing, and whether that unclean thing seems to be some form of carcass, or in verse 3, some form of human uncleanness. That's like some form of emission from a, a human being. We have a friend who was um, back at her old fellowship back in California, and she was a nurse at a prison. And she had the sweetest little Tennessee voice, and she was just, and she she had these little phrases that she would catch you with. And she's like, "We have a we have a phrase here in the prison, and it says if it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it." <laughs> I think that's pretty. That's, there's a little wisdom for you. But notice with this uncleanness, and then the next one, which is that you speak thoughtlessly. Notice that in verse four, swears speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or good. Then in both cases, it seems like you did it not really knowing it yet. That you touched something, but you weren't totally aware of it. You were, and by the way, if something is dead, more than likely you're where you shouldn't be. Or if you're in a position where you're just swearing thoughtlessly, which chances are you're in a place where you shouldn't be. I love the fact that God says this, and look at the end of verse 3. It'll be the same with the end of verse 4. It says, and he's unaware of it. When he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Did you see that? End of verse 4. When he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. I love the fact that God doesn't hold us guilty for what we don't know. In a situation like this, he says, yes. And here what's amazing is you can talk and be unaware of what you just said. That's what he's telling us. Are you aware of that? You could have put yourself in a contract and you didn't even realize it. You swore, oh, I swear, honestly, oh, this is what's going to be the case. I'm going to do this. I'll perform this. This is what I'm going to do. And in both cases, sooner or later, you kind of walk out. You ever been there where you've done that with someone? And then you've gone, oh, my goodness, what did I just get myself into? If you're British, I know you've done that if you've ever met an American. Because <laughs> we have a tendency to go, hey, you want to do this? And they're like, well, sure. But really, what you mean is no, absolutely not. But, but you know, Americans, we're not, we're not going to peek in and go, oh, wow, I wonder if she means. We're like, well, she said, okay, that means okay. Let's go. And they're like, oh, please, rapture or something. <laughs> please hear me, friends. God still has a sacrifice for you. But can I hear you? Trespassing, remember, is being where you're not supposed to be. That's the idea. The focus is on you're in wrong land. And I get the idea here that, that there, is, there are places where there's a lot of car carcasses, What's the plural? Lots of dead things. Death abounds. Is that really where you want to be? Now, if you had the power of life and you went there, this is what I've learned. Jesus never actually became defiled when he touched a dead thing because it stopped being dead. Did you notice that? So someone, someone couldn't say, well, you can't go to, to temple because look at you touched that dead body that's not dead anymore. So what do you do with that, right? I mean, that's the idea. And so please hear, this is the reason I say that. 
There is a difference between hanging among the dead without intending to see them made alive and hanging among the dead because it's ministry. But please don't lie to yourself and believe the lie. When someone goes, well, we're really not going to drink and we're going to, our ministry is we're going to go out and line dance for four hours and people are going to see that our line dancing is Christian versus the other because what? Because there's a hallelujah in your bootstep. I mean, the whole bottom line in it is, is there, if, if you don't have a set mission and you're going to go among the dead, you're going to wind up in the wrong place. And it is astounding how many people can't see that and then come back later and don't understand why they slept with their boyfriend again or why they got drunk or why there's a warrant out for their arrest or why they got in this fight and now they're totally beat up when they're like, you know what, really, I just, I went there, but they won't tell you afterwards, well, all I did was go there for ministry. They just believed it beforehand. Remember, the same thing happens in regards to the places where you get yourself into foolish oaths. You can put yourself around people who you know don't love the Lord and understand when you're around people who don't love the Lord, there should be a filter and a guard up that says, you know what, I want to be careful when I hear this stuff and I'm not going to take any of it for granted and assume it's just true because someone said it. I mean, if I'm going to say that about me and I'm teaching the word and the word's right in front of you, you can bet I'm going to say that about anybody else you listen to. Because in all of these cases, I want you to know, I want you to get right with me. Now here's the danger. Suffice it to say, there are probably some of you that came straight out of something like that and came in here. So you came in from the situation where you knew you should have been out, you know, you knew that God was calling you to testify in whatever manner, but you were silent. Or you knew that you really should have gotten your heart right before you came in here, but instead you were out doing the wrong thing in the wrong place with the wrong people. God says, I want you to know there's still a sacrifice for you. But we need to recognize, we've done more than oopsed. We trespassed. God said, don't go there. And we went, I wonder what's there that we can't go to. So notice what he says then. In verse 5, he says that he shall confess all the sin of this thing. And then verse 6, he says, Bring the trespass offering to the Lord for his sin in which he's committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, is a sin offering, so the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. If he's not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass in which he's committed two turtle doves or young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. Notice the order sin and then burned. And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer them which is for the sin offering first, and wring off his, his head from his neck. Now, could you imagine you give him birds and you watch a priest do this? I'm glad I don't have to have this kind of priesthood. But you shall not divide it completely. Then he'll sprinkle some of the blood for the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained by the base of the altar. It's a sin offering. He shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for the sin in which he's committed, and it shall be forgiven him. Now, notice, by the way, and actually let me go beyond and I'll go back up for a second. Notice in verse 11 it says then, if he's not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he with sin shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour. That's roughly 2.1 liters, to give you an idea, of flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it's a sin offering. Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar according to the offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him, for his, for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest of it will be as 
will be the priests as a grain offering. Now notice here then, in this case, he says, here's the deal. Let me put it in a simple nutshell. If you can do it, bring a lamb. You want to bring one for, for your, your trespass, one for a sin. Now, if you can't afford that, then I want you to bring a couple birds. And if you can't afford that, I want you to bring a handful of flour. Now, notice with that, the whole point's quite simple. God wants to make sure every person can go. He wants to make sure no matter how poor you are, you can go and get this dealt with. Because it's important for God, because God does not want you where you're not supposed to be. He wants you where you're supposed to be, which, by the way, according to Scripture, is with Him. That's the most important thing to God in this, is he really wants you with him. And by the way, it's amazing how you can go to even church for the wrong reasons and be trespassing. Because in your heart, you didn't go there to be with the Lord. You went there to scout out the girls, or you went there to go and eat pie, or whatever it is. But in the end of it all, you went for the wrong reasons. And in the end, please hear me, God says, it doesn't matter how poor you are, I want you, and I want you to come, but I want you to realize that sin costs something. Now, what's interesting is when we dealt with the birds, which, by the way, is the one that's given the most press here, I find it interesting the two things that he does. The first is you wring off his head, but you don't split it completely. And the second is you drain the blood in two places. I did. I find that kind of interesting. And the reason is, I think God's kind of pointing out something for us. When you run to those places, you're running off headless. That's interesting because according to the book of Ephesians, by the way, in Colossians 1, but in Ephesians 5, it tells us that Jesus is the head of the church. In Colossians 1, verse 18, it says he is the head of the body, the church. Please hear me on this. And every one of us here, you all look fairly normal on this, and none of you seem like you have any certain disabilities, which, by the way, doesn't make you any lesser of an individual. But it just makes my illustration easier here as you're all in the same place. How many senses does a person possess? I mean, we're not getting into esoteric, but simple, inarguable senses. There are five. How many of those senses are on your head? That's from your neck up. Which one are you missing? Let's see. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Did you feel that? How many senses are on your, on your head? Five. You have all of your senses on your head. Does that make sense? You, can, you felt that. Yeah. So... Okay, no, aren't you glad you didn't say that? <laughs> okay, now follow me on this. Let's go below your neck. How many senses are below your neck? Can you smell? Can you hear? Unless you're really from another planet. Yeah. Can you taste? Mmm, that's yummy. <laughs> Just one. Which one? Your sense of feeling. Because here's the point. Christ is supposed to be the head of the church. That is for steering, by the way. It's one of the things that's really good. That's why, by the way, it's so important to have your head, among other reasons. Like, you don't live without it. We're aware of that. One of the first things you learn, by the way, in martial arts often is that if you turn the head, the rest of the body will go with it sooner or later. And so when someone's coming at you and you turn their head away from you, they can't really keep coming at you for very long. And I find this interesting that your head can guide you in many ways. Even in the dark, your head will guide you because you'll be listening. But if you remove the head, there's only one sense left. And that's your only guidance. And that's your sense of feeling. And this is what happens with a church. If we are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the headship of Jesus Christ, we will be perfectly led. I am not your leader. Praise the Lord I'm not your leader for your sake. I'm an under-shepherd under the perfect shepherd. And I want to be my, please hear me, I want to be like him more than you could possibly dream. 
I want to be, I want to be more like him than you want me to be like him. But I know I'm human like the rest of you. Sorry. But praise God, I'm not your leader. I'm the under shepherd. But your shepherd's perfect and he is the head of this church. And he steers this church and he knows where he's going and he's never gotten lost. But if you remove Christ as the lordship of your life or of the lordship of this church, you will be governed by your feelings. And the rest of the world out there that doesn't have Jesus as headship, they're going to be governed by their feelings. Why do you think it is that they put little pictures up by the bus stops that show a guy in a wheelchair and say, go ahead, walk away from little Jimmy. He wishes he could. And you're like, oh, are you kidding me? Because you're governed by your feelings. And they know if they could keep prodding at the feeling, maybe they could actually get you to give money to their bucket instead of the one four steps down that's going to ask you next. So please hear me on this. That here you are looking at this bird and his head is ripped off. And I think that that's kind of crazy. And God goes, you realize what you're doing when you're trespassing? You're running around headless. In the book of Judges, we have this horrible cycle. And many of you are familiar with it. And I found this interesting because for many years I was familiar with the cycle. And then it re- finally occurred to me, how would this ever stop? Because I realized it's so much like many of us if we're not careful. God blesses the people. The people turn away from his blessing and they, they hold on to his blessing, but they forget the blesser. And then forgetting the blesser, ultimately they deny God, walk away from him, serve something else, and try to think that the blessing that they had was enough, but ultimately they'll find themselves in bondage as a result of it. That bondage will get so horrible, they'll cry out to God. God, in his mercy and kindness, will raise up a deliverer to get them out of that bondage, and then they will be blessed again, and as they're blessed again, they go back to the blessing instead of the blesser, and the cycle starts over. The entire book of Judges is that. And for some of us, that's our entire life. We give ourselves to Christ. He blesses us. We're, ah, thanks God. But then we run off on our own and we find ourselves back in bondage. And we cry out to God finally because we hate it. And God takes us out of the bondage. He blesses us again and the cycle starts over. What's fascinating to me is a couple of things. But one of those things is how people can develop a tolerance for their captivity. The first time that people are in captivity, in bondage, in the book of Judges, they're in bondage for eight years, and then they cry out to God. The second time, they're in bondage 18 years, and then they cry out to God. The third time, they're in bondage 20 years, and then they cry out to God. Do you get it? You can develop a tolerance to your bondage. In the beginning, you hated it the first time you fell. You run back to it, and this time you're in it for a little longer before. It has to get worse. It has to get worse. My question is, how does God get people out of the time of Judges? Well, he tells us at the end of Judges to hint at it. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Finally, God raises up his king, and the Judges are done. Please hear me in this. This is the difference between Jesus being your Savior and Jesus being your Lord. If Jesus is simply your Savior... That will be your cycle. And it will be actually proof that that's the case with you. The bondage, the crying out, the deliverance, the blessing, the bondage. And you get it. But the moment Jesus takes the throne, the cycle gets broken. And that's what God wants. But here's the problem. You start removing Jesus' headship from your life, and you're happy to take Jesus as a get-out-of-hell-free card, but we're not jumping in anymore with his lordship. 
But he demands himself to be Lord of all. But not only that, then you tear the part, the bird, is if it was split into two parts. But you don't tear it completely. Because you know what happens if you half an animal completely, right? You enter an oath. Remember that? How you split an animal and you walk between it? God says, I don't want you to think that I'm starting a new oath. We're staying with the same oath. But this is what's happening to you. You see, when you're trespassing, and we're not just talking about stumbling into a sin, when you're trespassing, you are actually divided. There's a part of you that's running in one direction after the world, and there's another part of you that's running after God at best. But you can't do both at the same time. Have you learned that? Here's the problem, is that the church teaches this, whether we know it or not. In our own lives, and I don't mean the church as far as someone that's handing this information down. We're the church. And as the church, do we honestly teach that God is for saving for heaven, but the world is for fun until? Because that's what it looks like a lot of times. And you'll watch it, and it starts in junior high or in high school, in elementary, and then primary, and then secondary. And what you watch is it's sort of like, well, a youth group is we have to have our fun, and then we have to have our Bible study. Then we get to have some more fun. Then we have our Bible study, if we have a Bible study. Or a quick short devotion, because we don't want to lose the kids. But you're already losing them if you're teaching them the world's for fun. But then the Bible's to to deal with, because you have to. It's the necessary evil, so we can get back to dodgeball. Is that really the case? And then as we get older, we do the same thing. Okay, well, we'll go to the study, but then after that, let's go out and have some fun. Now, I'm not saying that what we need to do here is juggle puppies that are on fire and make sure that everything is smoke and mirrors and it's like some big laser light show so that in the end of it, go, wow, that was such a great entertainment thing because church is not supposed to be the place where we come to be entertained. Church is supposed to be the place where we come to be used. And that's not just me. I'm just doing my job. I'm doing what he's called me to. I'm seeking to be obedient. But when we're done with this, either you're going to skate out of here and you're like, man, I'm glad I escaped that, or... You might be hanging around and watching that God wants to use you. And I know he does, every one of you. I've watched many of you go from a place of being isolated in your own island to being a place where you're in everybody's business in the very best of ways. And I love watching it. My goal is not to make you American. I'm I'm not even American as far as most of the American traits. What I am is Christian. My citizenship is in heaven. And I would love to look more like where I belong and you too. So please hear me. When God starts talking about this, and but here's, here's the other thing, and I think it's the same. When you look at it, he goes, now take the blood. Did you notice here you're taking the blood and you're pouring it in two different places? Did you notice that? It's like you split the animal so it's basically in two, but you don't tear it apart completely because we're not starting a new oath. And then he goes, then you pour the blood in two different places because you're kind of in two different places. That's the problem here. You're in that place where you go, all right, I'm in church right now and I'm hearing this, but I'm also in that place where sooner or later someone's going to go, let's go and do something awesome now. And awesome means we're going to get a few beers and we're going to hang out a little bit and we're going to do, 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 do. But in the end of it all, it's like, yeah, but... Is it bringing you any closer to the Lord? Is it making you any more advanced to look more selfless? Is it making you look any more like Christ? Is it challenging you in any way to leave who you were to become more a person that is surrendered to the living God and useful for the world around you from an eternal perspective? Or is it just we're being nice? And I'm not trying to harp on it. It's just so simple here that God says, look, in the end of it all, a priest is going to do this in front of you. So you can see in the end of it all, wow. That's, that's what happened. In verse 14 now, he picks it up and he takes us now to the restitution. In other words, there are certain things you do that you have to do more than offer a sacrifice. Please hear me in this. You put yourself in a place where you've done something against someone, you need to deal with that person too. So notice what it says in verse 14. 
The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regards to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation in shekels of silver. According to the shekel of the sanctuary is a trespass offering and he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing and add one fifth to it. That's 20%. And give it to the priest so that the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering. It'll be a ram in all of these cases from this point, you'll see. It'll be forgiven him. If a person sins and commits any of the things in which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, but he doesn't even know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity, and he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish of the flock with your evaluation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he's erred and did not know it. It will be forgiven him. If this trespass, it is a trespass offering, it's certainly trespass against the Lord. Verse, chapter 6, look at the first seven verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he's extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely in any one of the things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what was stolen, or the thing in which he has extorted, or the thing delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing in which he found, or all of all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore its full value and add one-fifth to it to give to, uh, to give it to whomever it belongs on the day of the trespass offering. He shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish of the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest, so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of the things which he may be done in which he trespasses. Now notice here, now you're getting somebody else involved. That was the case in the first and the last of these. And by the way, wouldn't it be awesome if this is the way the laws played out? Somebody stole from Rodrigue, this is hypothetical, and he stole Rodrigue's new iPad. It cost him 500 euro, because he was running around in other places and spent it on euro. So here it is, 500 euro, and he goes, and someone goes, and he gets caught. And he says, in the end of it all, it isn't like what happened is the guy's like, sorry, we're going to put him in jail, and here's your broken iPad. Good luck. What would happen in the end of it all if he would restore the full amount, and then he'd add another fifth to it. That's another hundred euro that he would get. It would be like the best thing that ever happened to Rodrigue was that someone stole his iPad. Now, I know there are people in, no, you probably right. there are people in our fellowship right now. They've borrowed cars. Someone's stolen their car, ran it into a ditch, and the whole thing's for loss. Could you imagine what happened if they had found the person, they restore not only the price of the car, but added a fifth to it. You realize the whole point of this isn't to just doubly punish a thief, though that could happen, but it's also to sort of stop people from wanting to steal in the first place. You realize it isn't like you're just going to hire a good lawyer and get off with it. The person, because unfortunately what happens when you don't cling to what the word says is you'll punish the victims instead of the criminals. And we watch in a lot of cases, the criminals get punished so much more than the, the, uh, the victims get punished so much more than the criminals. Now, in this case, to understand that all of this, God says, this is a trespass. He says, if this is the case, you've gone after someone and you, and you know, someone says, can you just hold this until I come back? And, and then what happens is you go like, oh, somebody took it, but you actually do have it still. God says, I'm going to nail you on that. I want you to realize because it's so important for people to realize that we don't jank each other around in the body of Christ. 
This is not supposed to be the place where we're out trying to get our own. Christ is our satisfaction, so we don't try to get it from others. This is the place where we serve each other. And God takes that very seriously. He takes it so seriously that he says, look it, if you realize that you've done something to someone and you want to offer me a gift, God says, let's not even play this game. According to Matthew, he says, this is what you better do. Go and get right with them first. Because you know what happens if you don't? That person's going to think that, that our religion, our Christianity is a sham. Because you janked them, and then you came over here and tried to pretend like everything was all hunky-dory with the living God. And God is not into that. So you understand what God knows is what we could forget. And that is that people aren't going to judge our walk with Christ by the way we walk with Christ. Strangely enough, he's gonna, people are going to judge our walk with Christ by the way we treat each other. And you know how I learned this? My children. I've learned that my kids will be much more confident in our love for them by the way I treat their mother than by the way I treat them. I seek to treat them well anyways. But the, the difference is they get to objectively view the way I treat their mother. They get to watch that from a distance. As where the way I treat them, they can't be objective about it. Understand the world's the same. Even though in regards to that, oh, even though the way we treat them, but they're going to watch the way we treat each other. And the way we treat each other, we have to have some form of dignity and standard that says we don't rip each other off. Now, here's the good news. I don't know of any circumstances, so I'm not rebuking anyone here. If God's rebuking you, that's for you to deal with, but because I don't know of it. But God wants to make sure you know that. The first of those three, remember, it's like if you sin against the holy place, a holy thing. Now, how do you do that? You've gone and you've touched something that wasn't yours. You took something that wasn't your job and you decided to make it your job instead. You went and defiled something because what happens then is they actually have to go through a whole ritual to really get that thing back where it's supposed to be. And that's really an important thing. So he goes, man, you cover that. That would be like walking in here and deciding you wanted to go and try to tear down one of these pillars. God says, look, I expect in the end of it all that you're going to go and have that thing fixed and then you're going to actually add to it so the church cannot just say, okay, well, they got it back to where it was, but you're going to restore it to a better place even then. And that's the way that God says, and wouldn't that be, now, what if we just took that in its simplest sense and said, that's going to be our standard now? Can you imagine what would happen? If I did something and I blew it, I'm going to restore a, a 20% over it. Now you're like, what if I can't? Well, then say, pray that the Lord would help you. I know he will. I watched this happen and you realize, wow, that person took really seriously this case. But if we realize, because either, listen, either stuff is going to win and people are helping us get it, or people are going to be the important thing and stuff is going to help us get them. You're just going to have to pick which one's more important. Here he says people are going to be more important. So as a result of that, I want to make sure that you realize, and notice, by the way, when this happens, when you've sinned, notice in chapter 6, it says, notice in verse 2, if a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord, even though you ripped each other off, do you notice how God takes it personally? You haven't just sinned against a person. You've sinned against him. And that's key. Because understand to God, there's nothing more important than your relationship with him. That's the key on this. And as a result of that, he takes that very seriously and wants to jump in on this. And he really, really wants us to treat each other in a way that is so unique from the rest of the world that is users by nature. So are we without Christ. We'll use each other for whatever the other one has. Serving selflessly for the other's benefit is an act of God. Now, here's the rest of this, and then we'll kind of bring this into, into closure. From this point on now, he'll tell us about these, this issue of these, what he calls the law of these offerings. In chapter, now we're in the chapter six, or um, 
I'm sorry, from verse 8 now to verse 13 in chapter 6. It'll be the law of the burnt offering. And chapter, then from verse 14 to 23, that will be the law of the grain offering. From 24 to 30 will be the law of the sin offering. Chapter 7, 1 to 10 is the trespass. Verse 11 then through to roughly 20 will be the peace offering. And then from there, he's going to basically say two things. And that's this. Don't eat meat and don't drink blood. There you go. That's simple. I want you to read it on your own. I'm going to trust you're doing that. But notice the key theme in all of this. First of all, when it comes about the law of the burnt offering, and we're almost done here, by the way, in verse 8. Command Aaron and his sons, saying this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, upon the altar, all night until morning. The fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. The priest shall put on his linen garment. He shall, his linen trousers he shall be on his body. He'll take the ashes from the burnt offering of the fire that is consumed on the altar. He'll put them beside the altar. He'll take off his garments. Put on garments other than that. Carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And lay the burnt offering on it every, lay the burnt offering in order on it. She'll burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Two key things on this. Obviously, the one is that that fire is never to go out. Did you notice that? Matter of fact, three different places. God makes that really clear. I don't want this fire ever out. Understand why. Because God wants to make sure that at any moment you can come to him. God wants to make sure no matter when you've blown it, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till later. Oh, well, get it dealt with now. That fire is always there so that as an all-consuming fire, that when you've blown it and you've done something stupid, don't just say, you know what, I'll just deal with it later. God says, let's deal with it now. Let's get it on the fire because the fire is burning. You want to say, well, well, the fire gets back on at 8 in the morning. Let's wait till then. God says, no, let's deal with it now. Aren't you thankful that the fire burns at night? When you wake up and you go, oh man, I just realized, or you're doing something really dumb and it's getting late, and God says the fire's still burning. And it's the morning and you think you'd start off so good and you did something so stupid in the morning and you thought this or you did this or you said this or whatever. And God says the good thing is the fire's burning in the morning too. And it's noon and you're out to lunch and you said something you just knew you shouldn't have said. And God says, don't worry, the fire's burning at noon too. It's tea time. And tea time stands for terrible time. And you've done something terrible. You've thought something wicked. And that person got your spot and you're whatever. And there was one space left on the train. And that big chubby guy took it instead. And you knew that meant you wouldn't be able to get on it. And you just thought, oh, I just hope that opens and he falls out or whatever. Because I never think that. That's what I hear stories. And, you know, and God says, hey, the fire's still burning at three too. The fire's always burning. And that means right now, too. But the other thing on this is, did you notice when you take those ashes out of the camp, you can't do it as a priest? You do it as a person. God says, when we go out of the camp, which, by the way, is where the sacrifice is for the sin and where our Christ will be be crucified, he says, you don't go there as a priest. You don't go there as a president. You don't go there as the powerful. You don't go there as the pervert. You don't go there as whatever you think is the prima donna. You go there as a person because Jesus saves people and the rest of its details. And that's you too. No matter where you're at right now, the fire is burning and he's ready to take you. Aren't you thankful? He hasn't told you to wait. It's the enemy that says, God's really angry at you. You might want to come back later. Please leave a message. It's the Holy Spirit that says, 
Let's deal with this right now. Is there anything you need to deal with right now? Some sin in your heart? Some bitterness? Some anger? Some disresolve? Something that you've still entertained and you said in the end of all, you know what? I'll deal with it later. God says, why? Why do you want to wait? Fire's burning now. Well, Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. And I know that that's such great, for me, that's tremendous comfort. With the grain offering, and from this point on, listen to this. When you, and he gives details on the grain offering. And notice verse 16 and 18. Listen, all the remainder of Aaron and his son shall eat it. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. What God is going to do in these next things, because he's already laid out the laws before us, if you remember in the first five chapters, is he wants to make sure his priests are taken care of. And that's the part that's really difficult for me, I'll be honest. Because it may sound like I have a vested interest, but I don't. I do have this vested interest. I want to see you charging for Jesus. That's what I want to see. But I don't work on commission. That's not the deal here at all. This is when you offer these sacrifices, you offer them and a part of it's going to be my priest because they can't work. And as a result of that, they're working for me. I'm their inheritance and you need to know that. With the sin offering in verse 24, notice verse 26 and 29. The priests who offer the sin shall offer it for sin shall eat it. Verse 29, all the males of the priests may eat it. It's most holy. With chapter 7, verse 1, when it says it's the trespass offering, notice verse 6, every male of the priest may eat it. In verse 7, the priests who make atonement with it shall have it. Verse 8, the priest shall have it for himself, the sin and burnt offering. Verse 9, so shall the priest who offers it. Verse 10, it shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to one as much as the other. With the sacrifice of the peace offering, notice verse 14, it says, it shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood on the priest's offering. God wants to make sure that you realize that he's going to take care of his own. In verse 31, notice it says, And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron and his sons. That means they get ribs. Verse 33, it says, He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the piece of the offering and the fat shall have the right thigh as his part, which means he gets some good leg meat. Verse 34, it says at the end of it, And I have given to them, to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons, for the children of Israel is a statute forever. And then he consecrates because that's the next thing. Because what we'll see starting next week will be actually narrative where Aaron gets consecrated with his sons so they can start being priests like God's called. This is where we end this. Is that God makes sure that he takes care. But the reason I say that isn't because I'm going to ask anything of you other than I want you to give yourself to Christ. But as you start to realize God's called you to ministry. And you say, well, I think God may be calling me to full-time ministry. I'd say, I sure, I believe God's called everyone to full-time ministry. Whether you get your check from the church, that's another story. But God calls everybody to full-time ministry. You are evidence. But if you are called to some form of vocational ministry, you need to know this, that God has a plan for you and his plans to take care of you. It will drive you batty if you don't have faith because every month we don't know how that works out because it doesn't work out in the math, but somehow it works out. But I do know this. That God promises it. First Corinthians chapter 9 says this, starting in verse 7. And listen to the metaphor he uses. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of the fruit? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does the law say the same thing also? And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4, when it says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? 
Or does he say altogether, for your sakes? For your sakes, no doubt, that it is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be partaker of that hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap material things? Notice verse 14, it says, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Man, if what you're doing is preaching the gospel, you should be freed up to preach the gospel all the time. That's my attitude, because there's just not enough people out there preaching the gospel. And I believe that every person who lives off of preaching the gospel should live off of preaching the gospel. Do you realize that if funding from America stops for us, we're gone? Now, I'm not saying that any weird threat. All I'm saying is, but it's not from America. It's the Lord who has to do that. It's his job. But what's beautiful isn't that because our attitude, the people, and this is the other side of it, the people who are serving the Lord should never make that their their governing mechanism. (coughs) It should never be that that's what we're looking for. Because if that's the case, if you're going for money and ministry, they should never correlate like that. Because you can't govern yourself by both. God says it. You can't be governed by God and money. But he does say this, and I'm almost done here so we can close this up. And if this makes you uncomfortable, I guarantee you it makes me more so than you. 1 Timothy 5.17, but if I'm going to say I've given the whole counsel, I have to give the whole counsel. Let the elders who rule well be counted of, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and their labor is worthy of his wages. But this is what God says about those of us who have given our lives in such a way to serve him in the ministry. Deuteronomy 18, verse 2 says, therefore... The Levites here who are doing that have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance. That's what he says. See, the Levites couldn't own land. And because the Levites couldn't own land, they couldn't raise animals. And because they couldn't raise animals, how were they going to eat? They couldn't farm because they didn't own land. He says, look it, I want you to be, I want me to be everything you seek. And then let everyone else, I'll use everyone else to take care of you. That's my job. It's the, here's the point in Revelation verses 1, 6 and in 5, 10, God has made us kings and priests now. And he's made you a priest like these Levites in this sense. No matter whether you are a carpenter or you're out there slashing burgers or whatever, God's still the one who's going to sign your check. It's his responsibility to take care of you. Now, as we go to close on this, and I challenge you to read those chapters and find otherwise, but we've just covered a, a key point here for it is that the Lord wants to make sure that we are where we belong. And where we belong, by the way, is in his lap, not chasing after something that God said was trespass. It was forbidden area. Now, if that weren't the case, if, if Adam had obeyed himself, it would have been the next guy. You know it. Because by the time it had gotten to us, sooner or later, we'd be out of Eden. I mean, so we can't blame Adam too much because, let's be honest, he's human like we are. But in the end of it all, what Adam did is he went to the one thing that was off limits. Can I say that's the whole thing? Every appetite you've been given, God has given you for companionship, for importance, for friendship, even for physical affection. But with every one of them, God has a specific menu. You may not like that menu, especially if you were raised not on the menu, then you've developed a taste for things off the menu. But all, anything off that menu is, is trespassing, if you think about it. God says, here's where I have it. Here's the difference. On his menu, complete satisfaction. Off the menu, it's a black hole you keep chasing after to fill yourself. And you know it. You see, in the end of it all, you've been chasing after things I have. I know what it's like. 
and it seems like you're drinking salt water, and the most crazy part is you're getting thirstier, so you think, I'll just drink more. That doesn't even make any sense, but we do it anyways. I'm lonely, so I'll chase after these empty relationships, and when that doesn't work, I'll do more relationships. Do you see how there's, that, that's kind of like going, I don't have any money, so I'll spend some more. You're like the gambler that keeps walking out of Ladbrokes. You should know it with a name like Ladbrokes, that what's going to happen when you walk in there. But you keep walking in thinking, this is the one you're going to nail. Beloved, can I just say this? As we go to prayer now, the perfect sacrifice for this has to be without blemish. And it is there not just to pay for the oopses, but those moments when God says, don't, but you did. When God says, do, and you don't. Because he says both here. And you could say, well, maybe I'll deal with that later. But understand, there's two aspects. There's the part with God and the part with God you want to deal with right away. And then there's the part with others. And he says, I want you to deal with that right away as well. If there's somebody you have offended, if there's somebody you've, that you've, by the way, decided to take offense to, now please understand, there's a big difference between personality and sin. Some people are just going to be hard to get along with and God puts them in your life so you can show love. Be warm and filled. But don't treat personality like sin. If somebody's hard to get along with, pray for them. Pray for you around them. But if you want to turn that into sin in your own heart, all you have to do is be bitter at them for them being themselves. Is there anyone who needs to deal with anyone today? Today. Get it done with. Get it dealt with. Because in the end of it all, God wants you walking out of here free. In the end, he says, if this is the case, as your resident priest for the moment, I want to take it to the Lord with you. And that's what we're going to do now. And as we do, God promises to do this. And here's the Hebrew word, Nassau. And it's the easiest word, one of the easiest words, especially if you're from America, you know what Nassau is. Because the word literally means to lift off. Just like Nassau. And that's the Hebrew word for Forgive. God would like to lift off your sins today. Your trespasses. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, that's where it starts. He died on the cross to pay for all those sins so he can lift them off of you and give you a new life now. But he didn't just die at the cross, did he, saints? He rose again. We don't testify of a person with great intentions. We testify of a conquering king who took our guilt to the grave and rose again to give us new life. And that's what God would like to do now. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the three hours or four hours of daylight that we have and now spending half of them in this room. But thank you, Lord, for your word and the power of it. Thank you, Lord God, so much for the way that you make so clear your word and how you've developed it today, even in my own heart. And Lord, I just pray right now as we deal with trespasses, Lord, as you've promised, your trespasses are what you've taken from us by nailing the iniquity of ourselves to your Son. And even right now, Lord God, I pray that if we've been a silent witness and we know it, we've been disobedient when your Holy Spirit was prodding us, we ask your forgiveness. If we've been hanging around death with no intention of bringing life into the equation, or maybe convincing ourselves we were, but we're really not. I pray you'd forgive us. 
if we've been around those, Lord, that have encouraged us to speak rashly and curt things, unkind things, brash things, filthy things, even blasphemous things have come out of our mouths. We ask you to forgive us. Well, we've been quick to enter into oaths that we should never have been quick to jump into at all. We should never have jumped into it at all in the first place. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Please forgive us today. We thank you, Jesus. You are a perfect sacrifice. But we pray, Lord, even as in Acts, they worshiped you with a pure heart, an undivided heart. I pray we would so as well. That there would be no division in our heart. There would not be one part running one way, another part running the other. But rather, Lord, even today, that every part of us would be surrendered to you. Every part. And Lord, as well today, please, commandeer every bit of us. Take your lordship, your headship upon us, Lord, we pray. That you would be our governing mechanism, that you would be the one who leads us, feeds us. We pray, Lord, if there's any person who's been caught in the fray of our own trespasses, we've dragged in in one way or another, or we in our own selfishness have abused or used, maybe we'd be quick to do more than just simply say sorry, but today to seek to make restitution properly. Or, Lord, they would see our genuineness And Lord, in that, I pray that if there be any place, Lord, where we've harbored bitterness towards someone that just we don't jive with or whatever, Lord. Lord, we recognize there's no sin involved unless it's in our own hearts. May we be quick, Lord, to lay before you the plank before we start looking at other specks. Make us quick to love. And I pray for every person you call here, Lord, to raise up and descend out in whatever way or raise up, descend in. Lord, that our hearts would be primed even right now to know that you're our inheritance. That's where our focus is. Not on getting big houses or cars or any of that stuff or making a name for ourselves. We're a household name in heaven. That's what really matters. So we don't want the biggest building. You're in it. Can't get any bigger. We just want the most fruitful ministry you have for us by being completely obedient to you. So Lord, thank you for what you've taught us in the trespass offering. And as you've reviewed for one quick second, Lord, your desire to make sure your priests are taken care of. I just pray for every one of us, Lord, that we would just be quick to give to each other and serve each other as you call. And we entrust ourselves to you. And finally, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, we have a prayer here that we'd love to pray. And I ask you to listen. If at the end of it you agree, I ask you simply to say, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I confess to you I'm a sinner. And I know you as a righteous judge punish all sin. But I believe that you died on the cross, Jesus, to pay for my sins so they could be properly punished. And that you rose again. And as you rose again, you've paid for all my sins and offer me new life. So 
I surrender myself to you, accepting the gift of your death for my sins and resurrection to be the Lord of my life. So I surrender to you now. Jesus, be my Savior. Jesus, be my Lord. As I hand myself over to you now, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.